This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the Port Aransas Whooping Crane Festival, February 22nd through 25th, 2018 in Port Aransas, Texas. Come see one of North America's most spectacular and most endangered birds in their traditional winter home along the Texas Gulf Coast. Visitors can expect workshops and seminars, birding and nature tours, and trips to see the world's last naturally occurring population of whooping cranes with experts from Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, Wood Buffalo National Park, and more. Online registration ends February 19th. For more information, go to whoopingcranefestival.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am, as always, your host, Nate Swick. Congratulations are in order for the bird team in the big football game last weekend. From from everything I have heard about the stadium in Minneapolis where the game was played, I, I suppose we're lucky that the Philadelphia Eagles didn't get confused by all the reflective surfaces and fly walk into the windows. I trust that the Philly traveling staff got there early and, and placed a bunch of football player shaped stickers on the windows so that they would, you know, they would know to avoid them. Really smart move on their part, I think. I, I hope they also moved any indoor plants away from the windows. That can be a real problem as well. You know, the last thing we needed was the NFC champs to hurt themselves on the way into the stadium. That's that's not to say there weren't some losses. Eagles backup kicker Camus Grugier Hill was was scared by a big hawk. He ran into the glass by the west entrance. Um, he was found by some Patriot fans who quickly called the rehabber. Uh, Grugier Hill was was bruised a little, but he's he's eating well. He's expected to make a full recovery. He will be released at the bottom of the rocky steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Art once he's acting normal again. So that's that's good news there. Also, a little bit of bird name news that we've been keeping an eye on. We, we talked about a year ago on the podcast about the effort to make the gray jay the national bird of Canada. An excellent choice, in my opinion. Gray jays are, are famously hardy. They're friendly, as has always been said about our friends in the, the land of the maple leaf flag. With a range that entails almost the entirety of Canada. Like I said, great choice. As of yet, the government in Ottawa seems to be dragging their feet on any sort of official designation for the Grey Jay. In the hopes of lighting a fire, some some birders, one from Canada, one from the U.S., uh, Dan Strickland and, and Carla Cicero, have petitioned the American Ornithological Society to officially change the name of Grey Jay to Canada Jay, or rather, as they argue, back to Canada Jay. As it appears, that was the name used by at least some populations of Prosorius canadensis. It's a bold move and one I, I don't inherently have an issue with, provided the folks are prepared for the inevitable Canadian J mistake. Same thing we hear about the wide-ranging goose. Will the AOS accept the name change? I you know, I gotta think that the odds are are no. The AOS is, is pretty famously conservative when it comes to common names, especially those that are are well established and not obviously a huge mistake. I mean, they didn't even change ring-necked duck to ring-billed duck last year, and that seems like a much more obvious and useful change, at least in as much as field marks are concerned. Gray jay is gray, after all, and it fits the whole gray jay, green jay, brown jay, unicolor jay, ultramarine jay, milieu. You know, I think if I were if I were a betting man, I would probably bet against this change, even though I like it. You know, it wouldn't bother me. It, it makes some sense. That shouldn't stop people from calling it Canada J if they like an argument that was made by Rick Wright on his blog. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. Um, and hey, maybe we can even get ahead of things and, and prevent the whole Canadian J mistake. One can hope. Believe it or not, 
That is not the only Canadian content, CanCon, that we have on the show today. I am joined by Bird Studies Canada educator Jody Allaire, along with writer Frank Izagiri, and we are going to talk about nature beyond birding and how an interest in nature, interest in general nature study will make you, and I don't think I'm overselling this, will make you a better birder. And with apps like iNaturalist, it is easier than ever to get into it. So Frank and Jody will be with me right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of January and the first part of February 2018. For the most part, this was a slower period across the continent, but there were a couple excellent finds worth noting here. We'll start in Arkansas, where a hunter looking for a greater white-fronted goose accidentally took a bean goose, which is looking good right now for tundra bean goose, in Lincoln County. This is one of only a handful of records of this old world species outside of Alaska, obviously a state first for Arkansas. Uh, goes to show what could be hiding in those giant goose flocks in the Midwest and a point for hunters who occasionally turn up these sort of really weird records from places where birders might not be inclined to go. Another potential first record from an ex-bird, a wing, <laughs> which looks very much like it came from a purple gallinule, was found on a beach in Clallam County, Washington last week. It would be a first record there. Interestingly, this would not be the first bird added to the Washington list from a salvaged bird. Least Ocklet also has that distinction. Nor is it the first time that a dead purple gallinule represents a first for that species somewhere. Nunavut in Arctic Canada had a first record of purple gallinule not that long ago. Other firsts include a tufted duck in South Carolina in Charleston County, perhaps a result of the unnatural cold weather in the eastern part of the continent. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, frozen lakes tend to push those birds into the south, although this was by far the farthest south record for this species in the east. And Pennsylvania also gets a first this week with a surprising gray-crowned rosy finch in Crawford County. We often think of rosy finches as being you know, Rocky Mountain alpine birds, and, and they certainly are, but gray-crowned has an interesting history as a vagrant with records from New York, Quebec, New Brunswick, Ohio, and Arkansas, among others. That is just a short roundup of the most notable rare birds in the ABA area for the last couple weeks. For all of the sightings, check out the ABA blog on Fridays, blog.aba.org. And for the most up-to-date news about rare birds around the U.S. and Canada, join our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. One of the major trends of birding in the 21st century has been a move away from a sole interest in birds. And this is this is facilitated by an ever-increasing library of field guides to various taxa, smartphone apps that make it easier than ever to identify and catalog the things that we see, and a general nature aesthetic that has become a bigger part of how we interact with the natural world. I know it's something that I've been increasingly interested in, and if my circle of birding friends is any indication, I'm sure a lot of others have seen the same thing as well. I am joined today by two birders who have wholeheartedly thrown themselves into this new reality. Jody Allaire is a researcher and environmental educator with Bird Studies Canada at Long Point, Ontario. I spoke with him last year about the Great Canadian Bird Count. Thanks for coming back, Jody. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, great to be here again. And uh, Frank Izagiri is a writer and naturalist, currently a doctoral student at literature at West Virginia University in Morganton. His Tools of the Trade article, All the Wonders of the World, I, Naturalist, and Birding, is featured in the latest issue of the ABA's Birding Magazine. It is an excellent read. Uh, welcome, Frank. Thank you very much for having me. I, I know that all three of us are birders, probably what you'd call, you know, quote unquote, serious birders. Did either of you have any sort of <laughs> 
watershed moment in your birding career where you really began to notice non-birding organisms in a serious way? I'll start with you, Frank. Uh, well, for me, I love. I really remember loving to look for caterpillars when I was really little boy. And I, I wonder, like, there, there's probably a lot of birders that might have started with something even before birds. But then, like, once you get into birds, it's like, oh, my gosh, birds. Uh, and that definitely happened to me. Um, and a lot of the other interests uh, fell aside. few summers ago, I did see a Promethea moth one day while birding, and the birds were kind of down. It wasn't a great birding day. And I was just like, whoa, okay. And that turned me on to moths. So maybe that was like sort of the thing. But of course, you I don't know. There's, there's, there's so many cool critters that you come across while birding. So... I'll, I'll try to just like keep it to that because <laughs> if not, I'll talk for hours. That's true. That's true. How about you, Jimmy? Yeah, you know, I was I was really lucky uh, growing up uh, in Peterborough, Ontario. That's sort of central Ontario and really close to, you know, these iconic wild places like Algonquin Park and the Kawartha Lakes. So I spent a lot of time with very outdoorsy family uh, camping, canoe trips, and then uh, doing lots of fishing. And, and it doesn't take much to really start looking around and, and uh, wanting to know, wanting to put names to things and uh, wanting to identify things. And, and so really it was this, this continued exposure at a very young age that really got, got the ball rolling and I wanted to know more and more. And, and obviously, you know, birds, birds really grabs onto you and, and uh, as far as I can tell, has not let go. But, you know, in, in terms of really getting a watershed moment with other subject matter, you know, it was really, I was really focused on birds pretty heavy. And, and, uh, when I was a summer student in high school at Presqu'ile Provincial Park on the North shore of Lake Ontario, um, I was working as assistant naturalist and there was, I was exposed to these other people that were like me, except they had these expertise in things like trees and butterflies and spending time with people that were just as passionate about other taxa, uh, that was really eye-opening for me. And I, I remember clearly uh, spending time with uh, fellow naturalist Mike Gurr, and uh, he was showing me butterflies, and we sort of made a pact that I would teach him all his you know, uh, shorebirds and, and uh, migrant birds, and, and he would teach me the skippers you know, and all these more nice. obscure butterflies. <laughs> and we had this great relationship of, of, of learning different things, and I think that was it. That's, it's been sort of snowflake turns to blizzard really quickly, <laughs> right, when you're, when you're yeah. learning new, yeah. new taxa of natural history. Yeah, and, and I, I experience is very similar to yours. I grew up in a very nature outdoorsy family. Um, I turned... I was interested in, in herps and, and bugs early on. Turned to birds because there are you know some issues with each of those. Herps, diversity is not great. It's fun to go out and look for them, but they can be difficult and sometimes you can't see very many. And bugs are the opposite. You know, there's yeah. it's it's almost overwhelming once you start scratching at the surface of insects. And so I turned to birds, it's kind of mm -hmm. a perfect, perfect middle ground. And then when I when I had kids of my own, yep. birds are kind of difficult for young children to see, especially mm -hmm. the kind of flitty little ones. And when I would take my kids out into the, into the woods, take them when I went birding, like we would increasingly focus on things like, like snakes and turtles and uh, beetles that we would find. And so I kind of got back into that. And um, yeah, I really think working with children, being around children is a really great way to get them into nature because some of those things are, are, are everywhere and you don't have to go very far to see those things. I think that we're, we can talk a bit about this, this idea that becoming more 
well-versed in these other aspects of natural history will make you a better birder. Do you think that is the case? Yeah, I, I think it does. I think, you know, learning more about uh, other aspects of the natural world, and especially let's take, let's take identifying habitats or, or botany, you know, being, uh, being able to understand ter- a certain type of marsh habitat um, or a certain type of forest. That's going to help you, you know, sort out in advance, really, what type of birds are going to be in there. So I think the more you start learning about, you know, these different elements of natural history, whether they be the types of trees, the types of forests, you know, that is going to make you a better birder, just really simply because it helps you uh, kind of make those associations between types of habitat and, and bird species. And I think those are types of things we do subconsciously you know, as bird, it's just like much of bird identification is, is a rather subconscious process. You know, we're making all these split second decisions. We're not necessarily conscious that we're doing it. We, we do that type of thing when we look at habitat. And I think, you know, in some ways we might be missing out in some cases, some of the most interesting aspects of the forest or the, the location you're in, it may not be that particular bird you're looking for. It could be these amazing, uh, you know, amazing butterflies uh, that are there or these really rare tree species or these orchids that you can find in this spot, you know, and I think opening up a little bit just outside of the bird focused realm can really open your eyes to some really other cool things that you can find out there. But yes, will it make you a better birder? I, you know, I would, I would argue that, uh, that definitely it can. Yes, I, I think Jody touched on one of the biggest ways in terms of like, in terms of practical skill, ways to improve your skill as a birder, how being a, a good general naturalist can help you do that. Another way in which knowing a little bit more about natural history uh, can help your birding is that Uh, and I mentioned this just really Mm -hmm. briefly in the article, is that it can help you socialize a little bit more. Like, let's say you're going out and and there's not that many birds, you know, the migrants pass through already or whatever. (laughs) The weather was too nice, you know, whatever thing. Um, It can help you, like, you know, say, okay, you find, like, uh, some kind of orthopteran or or maybe an interesting mushroom or something. You can kind of say, like, oh, check this out and, like, most birders, maybe not everyone, most birds will be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. So it can be kind of like yeah. a nice social lubricant ease. Um, uh, also, another thing, and this is this is a way in which iNaturalist has influenced my, my birding, so to speak, is um, that I pay a little bit more attention mm-hmm. to bird sign now. Because when you're submitting like kind of a traditional checklist, let's say you're out and you didn't see a blue jay on that day, but you saw a blue jay feather on the ground. Well, you're not really, I mean, I think the way most people do a checklist, you're not going to put blue jay on your checklist, but you can submit that sighting to iNaturalist and, you know, that's a blue jay and people will confirm the sighting. And that has sort of incentivized me to look for sign of birds more. I think next time I go shore birding, I, I really think I'm going to try and take photos <laughs> of if I find any prints or anything and yeah. and see how I can do with that. And maybe just if I'm totally bewildered, which I'm sure I will be, I, I, I can just put it online and maybe someone on the site will be able to say, oh, that was like, I don't know, a willet or something. It can help you to learn a lot in ways that, that maybe you wouldn't really be incentivized as much without iNaturalist. So yeah. And I want to talk about iNaturalist too, because I really feel like 
a lot of this movement towards becoming birders becoming sort of more all around naturalist has been printed by smartphones and iNaturalist. So it's sort of counterintuitive that this technological shift has allowed us to be more in touch and more aware of what's going on around us in the natural world. Have you found that you enjoy, for lack of a better word, naturing uh, with iNaturalist more than you would otherwise? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, whether I enjoy it more. I certainly think that it it does enhance the experience. And I remember, you know, early on, uh, if you wanted to identify something, and if you didn't have the luxury of, of having some really great people, like mm-hmm. taxonomic experts at your disposal that you could go out with, you know, you had to have a horde of books and you had to do your studying. And, and um, uh, you know, if you want to go out and you want to try to get answers, it, it took a fair bit of research. Sometimes those books were not that great. You know, it's only relatively recent that we had like really good yeah. guides to those places. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It, yeah. Things are... Things are not only better now because of, of, of or easier now because of smartphones and iNaturalist, um, but yes, even the resources, even the you know the hardbound field guide is is even better now. There's so many great books out there on the market, which I'm sure we'll yeah, talk we'll talk, about we can later, talk about that. Yeah, I think it does. It is really a bit of a watershed moment, and and I think technology is at the point now where it does enhance the experience out there. And there's lots of examples of this. And I think digital cameras and smartphones, you could probably pinpoint as one of the two big changes to not just birding, but also natural history, uh, observation and documentation. And the cool thing about iNaturalist is uh, not only can you find things out in nature, if you take a photo of it, you can get pretty close to identifying it. And if you can't, someone else down the pipe will and and one of the big changes that's happened in the past year is the is the emergence of of ai and basically uh and an automatic id that comes up you upload a photo and you'll basically get a short list of what your critter will be based on a variety of factors yeah it's remarkable <laughs> it is and i think that's a i think that's a game changer and i think mm-hmm. we live in a world and everyone you know likes to talk about what the millennials are doing and how do you get millennials out? And it seems to be the, the topic that comes up all the time. But I, I would, you know, I would dispute that it's just that. I think it's just in general getting people outside. Well, if people are more interested in getting outside, if they could take a smartphone in this cool app, you know, and if that motivates them to, to, to want to learn a little bit more or provide the tools to learn something very easily, then I think that is very, very positive and, uh, and certainly has changed the way I go about things. Because I make all these great observations and find cool things, and they often just sit in notebooks, yeah. you know, and now I can upload that stuff into iNaturalist and, uh, and iNaturalist basically default becomes this great scrapbook mm-hmm. of all your cool observations, a sort of permanent scrapbook. That that just sits there. And I know Frank, you know, alluded to this in, in his article as well. And, and I think there's something very valid to that, you know. And I think Instagram or other similar things, Flickr, that's now becoming people's, you know, not just birding scrapbook, but nature scrapbook. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really like that way forward of people wanting to share these observations and get conversations started. And I think it's all very, very positive. I love that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to say, Frank, you you talked a lot about more than just being a strap, but, but also being kind of a repository for for stories uh, that people can tell about the natural world. Sort of this extension of this this long tradition of nature, natural history storytelling that you know goes back hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I that was something that sort of hit me. One of the things that I, I like to think about and do research on is how people have described nature historically and 
from you know early exploration narratives and things like that and how it sort of influenced um, people's perception of of nature the environment or whatever and that's sort of like a feedback loop then like the way people write about the environment influences the way they think about nature and then that influences the way they write about it in turn and it sort of like hit me really hard at some point that uh, social media and iNaturalist, of which iNaturalist does have something of a social media component, which I think is something that's cool about it. That is really, it's like, it's like expanding the way we, we have, we have this birders really know this. We have this really strong impulse, almost like an irrepressible impulse sometimes to just tell our birding stories. We love to share birding stories, with <laughs> sometimes too much, you know, like you're trying to bird and like someone you just met is like <laughs> yeah. telling you about like some great bird he saw in the Amazon or something. It's just like, <laughs> you know, uh, we're like we can't help ourselves. And I, I think that that impulse is really expanding into, you know, places like iNaturalist and on social media. And, and I, I think it's great because it really, like we're, we're able to, to share our experiences and just increase awareness like really around the world about what we can find what can we we can expect to see there have been so many times when i've seen something on iNaturalist that was uh, a sighting around me or near me and i was like oh wow i've never seen that before and you know someone had you know notes and dates and all of a sudden i i found myself looking at that exact critter and I knew what it was, or I was close to knowing what it was. And those sorts of connections, I, I think, are are really like they're changing the way we think about nature in a way that it's, it's moving. It's changing so fast that it's hard to like keep track, really, of how it's influencing the way we, we um, interact with the outdoors. It's, it's really exciting, I think. Yeah, I, I certainly have seen more kind of just just people that I that are in my circles that are not necessarily in my nature circles uh, definitely have an interest in, in what is going on. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I think it does have to do with this this sharing, not just on iNaturalist, but social media sharing in general. Yeah. People are sort of into what you are into or the sort of, uh, you know, people are interested in the natural world, even if they don't, you know, go out on the weekends or, or it, and specifically look for stuff. People like to know what's going on around them. And I think that's kind of a natural human impulse. Yeah. I want to talk sort of briefly about this this bio blitz trend um, and how it's sort of changing how we how we understand biodiversity. I, uh, Jody, you said that you coordinated a blitz this summer at Long Point. I've also participated in bio blitzes as well. It's really an incredible opportunity to spend time with people who who know these other other groups and, and sort of share your love of birds. Do you see this bioblitz trend increasing? Do you see more people kind of jumping into this? Yeah, I do. I, I think I think the bioblitz is, is a really great idea. And th this past year in 2017 was um, Canada's uh, sequicentennial, you know, so it was our 150th year. Um, and because of that, we had celebrations across Canada, a variety of things, and it was really great. One of the things that was uh, that was put on is uh, the BioBlitz Bio Canada ended up getting funding to put on BioBlitz events right across the country. And it was really amazing. There was big flagship events. There were small community events. Bird Studies Canada and our staff were, were helping with some of these events across the country. And we we hosted one, Bird Studies Canada hosted one here at Long Point, a very intensive one. And it was it was honestly the most the most fun I had summer, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and I do lots of forest bird work and, and do stuff, but to have this incredible group of about 40 taxonomic experts from, you know, across Ontario, 
converge in this area, the Norfolk Forest important bird area. And and obviously we were telling birds, but we were telling everything we could find in 24 hours. And it was wow. really exciting. It was like yeah. Christmas bird count yeah, yeah. on steroids, totally. honestly. Like it was really I couldn't believe it. It was like a big day with all the other taxa combined and we were up all night mothing and up early for birds and and it was it was a lot of fun. It was an incredibly enriching experience not only for for me and and the opportunity to learn from all these amazingly talented people but for everyone to share their expertise. And I think with these type of events going on, I think there's a, there's an opportunity for for birders to get involved in these to be able to share not only their love of birds but also their knowledge of birds to other people. And, uh, and it's a great opportunity for birders to learn about other taxa. And the fact that they're open, these BioBlitz events are open for the general public to participate in, what you get is, and especially a lot of people with young families, you know, for the same reasons that, that Nate, you were talking about earlier, you know, kids obviously really love nature and really are uh, bugs and, and plants like really are, are something they can grab onto quite, quite early. Sometimes literally. Yes, literally. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yes. And so they, you know, families come to these events and you've got an opportunity to engage, you know, sort of the next generation or families, not only with insects, but also with birds. Right. So uh, it's, I think it is a great trend. And iNaturalist is a part of the, was a part of this trend as well. All the data collected from the BioBlitz yeah. was all. I was just going to ask, did you iNat everything? Yeah, everything <laughs> was uploaded into iNaturalist. It's a great trend. And I highly recommend if people get a chance to participate in one of these, you should. It's really great. They're, they're a ton of fun. And, and one that I did at a local wildlife center, which was sort of an urban wildlife center here in the, the Piedmont of North Carolina, they did mothing. So they put up this massive white sheet between these two trees and they had lights on it all night. It found like three new species for the state, <laughs> just like, wow. like micro moths that people, you know, people are not paying attention <laughs> to those things. It, that, that is one thing that I, that I really think is beneficial with this, this push towards this more general nature interest among birders is that there's so much opportunity to make real significant impacts in the scientific record, uh, particularly for under underserved taxa like uh, like moths, for instance. Um, here mm-hmm. in, in my state of North Carolina, they keep county lists of moths in a place where you have even just one person, you can get 800 species of moths in a county. And you look at other counties nearby and there's like 10 recorded species like that. Why is this the case? It's people aren't paying attention. It, it shows you the impact that one person who cares can, can have. I know. I totally agree, Nate. I think, I think this is, uh, uh, you know, as we said earlier in our discussions, you know, I've always thought of myself as a naturalist, uh, naturalist and birder, right. You know, and, and I've always been in, interested in natural history. And I think, I think, you know, it doesn't have to be a dichotomous relationship. You know, I think people would enjoy so much learning about different taxa, learning about different subject matters and, and beyond the uh, the low hanging fruit that comes after birds like butterflies and dragonflies. And don't get me wrong, I love butterflies, moths and dragonflies. But, you know, there's some amazing, amazing things out there. And it really is an enriching experience. And And whether you're like on a bird tour or just out on your own or in even your backyard, you know, once you tune mm-hmm. in to other aspects of nature, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't diminish birding at all. You can bird and look for cool tree crickets at the same time. To piggyback on what Frank was saying, you know, one of my favorite times of year, like truth be told, is I love the spring season when all the birds are singing and migrates come back and it's exciting and you can't really sleep and it's like you've had coffee like way too much for the entire month of May. And when you get to late August, 
and all the Orthopterans start singing and all the, the Katie Dids and Meadow Katie Dids and Tree Crickets mm-hmm. start singing and you, and you tune into yeah. that, that to me is, is, is turning into one of my favorite times of year. That amazing singing chorus outside your window when you could have five or six species of Orthopterans singing in your backyard. And, and if yeah. you're not tuned into it, you don't, you don't notice it. And it's, and it's really, what, when I first really tuned into that, it really changed things for me. I was I was suitably impressed of what I had been turning a blind eye to all this time, and it's an enriching thing to do this. Yeah, that's it's kind of nice too sometimes because like, I mean, we can bird in our our backyards, and, and during sometimes of years that's really exciting. But like, when you're looking at the other critters too, like let's say you're working a lot, you're super busy, and you don't have time to really launch like a really nice birding day, like a half day or a full day. It's kind of nice sometimes. You can just like go outside and turn on the light <laughs> and like you can kind of like get your fix or something, you know, just like check out what moths are there. You can do it for just like five minutes. Of course, five minutes turns into half an hour, but yeah, it turns into three in the morning. It's nice to be able to fill in those gaps and like scratch the itch a little bit uh, with that stuff too. It's fun. It's very fun. Totally agree. Well, thanks so much, Jody and Frank, uh, for joining me. It's a lot of great discussion here. I want to thank you guys for for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, Frank, what is your INAT handle? It's Bird is Life. And cool. is and is what, IZ. IZ, what is yours, Jody? Uh, Jody Allaire. Jody Allaire, perfect. So look look them up on iNaturalist. You can find all sorts of cool stuff. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> thank you so thanks. much. Nate, talk to you guys later. Jody, Frank, and I talked for a long time, including a segment at the end about useful resources for birders looking to expand into other taxa. I ended up cutting that for time, but Jody and Frank have generously provided that list and a few other things we didn't talk about at the time for your edification. You can find it at the ABA blog. The link is in the show notes. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We're more than just a podcast. We are a membership organization with a mission to help encourage people to enjoy and protect wild birds. Join our membership and do your part to help build a better birding community. You can get more information about that at aba.org join. Special thanks to Anna Stalkup of Cedar Creek, Texas, Stefan Wazowitz of London, Ontario, Brendan Wang of Henrico, Virginia, and Kendall Lloyd of Springfield, Missouri, who notes that she joined the ABA. ABA after listening to the podcast, but was introduced to it by my dad. Welcome to the ABA. Thanks so much for your support. That's that's how we're going to do it, folks. One person at a time introduced by immediate family members of those of us who work with the ABA. I guess there are worse ways to do it. We're still looking for help uh, on our advertising demographic survey from Libsyn. That link is in the show notes. You can admit your email if you don't want that info attached to you. Thanks in advance for your help. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's been reading a lot of Nietzsche and Kierkegaard lately. He's very diligent about logging that info in the app iNihilist. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's super stoked about the upcoming Olympic Games, but finds it hard to keep track of where all those athletes come from. But he has found the app iNationalist invaluable on that front. Help also comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They're working on the next the next big thing. It's a, it's a fancy stock trading app called iCapitalist. It's going to be huge. 
You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. If you follow us, you know how easy it is to get confused with other ABAs, but at least we are never confused with iNaturist. Trust me, that is a very different place to log your bear tracks. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.